You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Okay, welcome to episode 55 of Sprogcast, a podcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, a wonderful publisher of all sorts of books we like, who can be found at pinterandmartin.com. In today's episode, we're exploring a completely new topic for us, IVF and surrogacy. I'm Mark Harris. And I'm Karen Hall. Coming up today, we have got so much. We've got two interviews. One is with Emily Scott, who represents the campaign to end the IVF postcode lottery. And then I'm talking to BBC journalist David Gregory Kumar about his experiences of having a baby with a surrogate mother. And we've got some news from our favourite charity, Birthrights, about their Holding It All Together report, looking at the maternity experience of women facing severe and multiple disadvantage. We'll play that right at the end of the show, and it is already on Patreon for our subscribers. Mm, Good to hear from them, isn't it? Yes, it really is. It was nice of them to get in touch. Yeah, excellent. I'll just do a little Patreon update. So you can find show notes for every episode on patreon.com slash broadcast. And these are sent out a day before the episode release date for all our subscribers. So you get links to everything we've talked about. Um, So if you're kind of listening and thinking, oh, what was that? That's where to go and have a look. Um, They will be available to the general public a few days later. And we also use Patreon when we've got a really lovely long interview and can only fit part of it into the show. And sometimes we have special bonus material for subscribers only. Go on, Mark, you're dying to say Well, I, I'm just going to say, if you subscribe to us on Patreon, the very least you'll get is a badge and our grateful thanks. It's true, isn't it, Karen? So this month's grateful thanks goes to Helen Darliston, who should soon be in possession of one of our highly fashionable T-shirts. I think I've already sent it. Have you? That's wonderful. I think I have. I probably need to check. You know what I'm like. (laughs) Okay. Yes. (laughs) We'll check. Yeah. And and do, please, whatever sort of like platform you listen to us on, if you like what we're doing, do leave a five-star review (laughs) or a review. Or a four and a half. A four and a half is okay. four and a half is okay. And do consider sponsoring us at Patreon. You know, five pound a month certainly gets you one of our t-shirts. And at two pounds, you get a badge. Actually, it's less than that, isn't it? Because it's five dollars, two dollars. Oh, so at yeah. the moment, oh, that's yeah. a bargain. Well, the exchange rate's one one thirty, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, only going to. Yeah. So do it. <laughs> Let's do not it. even go there. We've got a few things to report back on because we were both at oh, the yeah. Northern Ireland Positive Birth Conference since the last time yeah. we spoke. That was good fun. I enjoyed that. Did you have a lovely day? I did. I, I being totally honest, it was a a real treat to meet Michelle O'Donnell properly mm-hmm. and uh i you know although if i'm honest i found him quite difficult to understand i had to be listening mm-hmm. very carefully uh but i i really uh, was touched by his warmth he was very uh warm toward me and i appreciated that 20 minutes weren't long to talk and because the flipping compare cut me short anyway i was going to ask you <laughs> have you forgiven me yet didn't even get 20 minutes listeners have you forgiven me? Yeah, I have. My role there was um, sort of introducing the speakers and monitoring the timings. And you threw me completely because I was monitoring the time, but I hadn't 
actually got it right in front of me at the point at which you looked at me and said, how long have I got left? And I just sort of went, blurted out five minutes yeah. thinking, you're going to speak for twice that anyway. And you spoke for another three minutes and stopped and I felt awful, Mark. <laughs> it was all right. I'm so I, I, sorry. I, it's all right. I didn't have time to develop my main uh, premise and that's preparation issue, but I got some good feedback. So, And you were really great and it was absolutely lovely to see you doing that which I think um, I mean you're brilliant at this podcasting oh, thank but you. you're amazing on a stage and I think that's that's where people should see you so if anyone is putting on a conference have oh, Harris at it thank you very much yeah it's nice of you to say that I enjoyed the day Good. I'm always taken aback uh, I say always the last twice I've been in Belfast for this conference the kind of numbers they get are amazing I mean it was yes. packed weren't it over 200 I'd say and a great turnout from midwifery yeah. um, personnel locally. I, maybe. I don't know whether we're pushing it to say, well, there's more midwives than I'm used to being at that kind of conference. So, Really? Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at least one obstetrician, for sure. Yeah. Was, was Michelle Odont the highlight for you? I think Michelle Odont was the highlight for me. Um, what he had to say, I've read you know him writing about it before but yeah he was the highlight and I think that's more to do with my history you know when I first started training as a student it was his books that really fired me up and got me inspired and uh, although I have taken a little bit of an issue with the dogmatic way he uh, talks about excluding men from the birth room um, I, I know where he's coming from and uh, he was a treat weren't he it was interesting to watch him, but it was hard to listen to him. I, I tell you another highlight um, was the physiotherapist talking about pelvic floor health. She was great, wasn't she? I thought she was brilliant. And she's going to do an interview for us for the new year. Great. Gra Granny Donnelly, I think that was, off the top of my head. Breaking taboos. We're going to do a, a, an interview for the new year. Yes, and we have got that subject covered on Patreon with James Sim Jane Simpson, who was another really good speaker when I interviewed her. Had you gone by the time I interviewed Marie Lewis? I was outside, I think. I really enjoyed doing that. Well, I enjoyed her because we, we had dinner, didn't we, the night before? We did, yes. And um, I thought her insights as a fairly senior manager where she is at were were very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. When I interviewed her, we started off talking about continuity of carer and I think she made a statement about feeling uncomfortable supporting women who asked for a cesarean. And as she talked about supporting women, she talked herself all the way around to being keen to support women in every situation, even if she didn't agree with the decision. And it was amazing. Yeah, I get that. I mean, that's that underpins for me what it means to be uh, a, a public servant in the context of being a healthcare worker. You know, people are always going to make choices potentially that, that, that I wouldn't make. But, but my commitment to, you know, to care and be supportive should be non-negotiable, shouldn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly that. The idea of elective cesarean birth is a tricky one, though. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Because I, I can't imagine uh, any other discipline where major abdominal surgery would be elective based on the client's preference 
No, true. But do you remember ages ago when we were in Leeds and Rinika Shram, the obstetrician, said, "Yeah, if you support a woman when she comes to you and asks for that, the chances are that's probably going to be enough support for her to feel she doesn't need it. Yeah, no, I get that. And uh, yeah, I get that. If you set the interchange up as a confrontation at the beginning, it's probably not the way to go. But there's a broader issue. And, you know, my mate Dennis Walsh, I remember, I think it was our very first broadcast live, was saying that we do exist inside a rationed NHS. So the, the choice to have an elective procedure that's not indicated clinically is having an impact on distribution of those finite resources that's true but women are not asking for it for cosmetic reasons it's not frivolous my my position if you want my personal position is that we we support women with regardless of her choices but in the context of giving her as as a full roundup of the information that's available and of course her 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 state of mind, inverted commas, uh, is part of that clinical decision-making process. Hmm. We seem to have gone down a rabbit hole. <laughs> I don't know. We do that. I was just going to say, I, I really enjoyed Kate Langley's talk. She was great. And Neve McCabe just blew me away. She was wonderful. Oh, yeah. She's and awesome, everybody, all day, everybody said, every time somebody referred to her, they were like, oh, the wonderful Neve McCabe. And she really, truly lived up to that. I'll tell you what, she'd be beatified if she was a, she might be a Catholic. I don't know. It might be on the cards. <laughs> let's not speculate about people's faith. <laughs> no, let's not do that. But, you, but, not but I take your point. I mean, <laughs> I take your point. I mean, I spoke to a woman outside in one of my vape breaks and, and she was talking about the difference that Neve had made in her second pregnancy was massive. Yeah. So she's making a difference out there. She is indeed. So that's the NIPB put to bed, I think, for for another year. I've also been to the Breastfeeding Network conference last week. Oh, were you speaking there? Or? Yes, Amy Brown was speaking and she was brilliant as always. And her new book is coming out soon, which is about uh, sort of um, examining evidence when it comes to all the advice you get given during pregnancy. So not an original concept. It'll be probably the third book along those lines I've read recently. But it's Amy, so it's going to be the best. Is it Pinter and Martin? Yes. And um, the other person who, was, who I really enjoyed was Natalie Schenker from the Human the Hearts Milk Bank. Right. Good. Yeah. And any talk on milk banking is usually pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah. So a day well spent. Definitely. How about you? Have you been up to anything interesting? Me? I went away last week to Cleethorpes with nine of my grandchildren and six of my children. Cleethorpes, eh? Yeah, Haven site. Yeah, it was good. Mm-hmm. Went to the entertainment in the evening, saw some dodgy magicians. And uh, yeah, Wonderful. it was good. And uh, what else? Uh, not a lot. Oh, the NLP birthing practitioner. I've done a couple of weekends of that since we last got together. I'm enjoying that a lot. Good stuff. Yes, small group, group of about six or eight. Yeah. That sounds really That's nice. That's it. What are we going to do now? Shall we talk about IVF? Yeah, do it. So I did a little bit of reading because this is a subject I know pretty much nothing about. Right. I don't know about you. It's a subject that no. you're familiar with. 
and Emily contacted me, I, I think because of a retweet from David Gregory Kumar. So the sort of surrogacy IVF um, body of social media sort of pricked up its ears and went, ooh, we might want to talk to you as well. So I looked up on the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority annual report and it gave me a load of information that I thought was interesting and worth sharing just in case there's anyone else out there who doesn't really know much about this. So the first IVF baby in the world was Louise Brown and she was born in 1978. Hmm, doesn't seem that long ago. It doesn't, does it? I was going to say, maybe it's my age. Maybe. Uh, well, now there are 68,000 IVF treatments in the UK in 2016. Wow, 68,000. It's huge, isn't it? That's massive, yeah. I read that one third of treatment cycles results in a birth. Right. So it's a one in three hit rate. Uh, I mean, my experience of IVF over the years has been sketchy, but one in three sounds like good odds. Uh, I don't know, maybe if you're listening and you've been through the process, yeah, uh, that, that would have sounded a bit flippant and un, uncaring, but it wasn't meant that way. And you can always talk to us if, if that is the case. We'd love to hear from you. Definitely, yeah. Uh, one in three? I don't know. It's, uh, it, that's that, that's better than I would have expected it to have been. Right. I didn't have any expectations. I've, I literally know nothing. So I've learned that the, the majority of IVF treatments use the couple's own eggs and sperm. That's about 88%. Yeah. Um, there's an increase in the number of treatments using the patient's own frozen eggs. Right. That More IVF treatments in the UK are privately funded than NHS funded. Right. Patients under 35 have the highest success rate. Patients under. Which I think is relevant to what Emily's saying, because where some authorities are picking and choosing who they offer it to, they're going to, I presume, pick those with the highest success rate, although that's not quite what she's saying. No, I, I, they've I, got to have some kind of criteria in a ration service. Yeah, absolutely, they do. And then there was also a load of stats on donor insemination. So there were 5,447 donor insemination treatments in 2016. And the birth rate per treatment is 12%. Um, but, but that's increasing. And then they did have a bit of data on surrogacy, but not very much because they don't regulate surrogacy. And it said there were 232 IVF treatments in 2016 where the patient was a surrogate. And this has doubled over the last 10 years. So that's relevant to our second interview today with David Gregory Kumar. So you spoke to Emily. I did speak to Emily. Would you like to have a listen? Yes, please. Let's listen to that. So I'm Emily Scott um, and I'm campaigning to end the IVF postcode lottery in England. Right. And can you tell us about what the IVF postcode lottery is, please? Yeah, of course. So at the moment, the way um, IVF allocation works on the NHS is that uh, local uh, clinical commissioning groups are empowered to decide how they spend their budgets. Um, and that means that for IVF, even though there are clinical guidelines, the NICE guidelines for what is effective um, treatment and cost-effective treatment, um, CCGs can choose how many rounds of IVF they offer. So... The NICE guidelines recommend three as being a cost-effective and clinically effective number, um, but some CCGs are offering uh, one, some have completely removed access. So where you live in the country basically means 
that your postcode decides where uh, how much treatment you can access right so there's an unfair situation where couples in one part of the country could have the full three and in another part of the country nothing yeah absolutely it's it's deeply unfair and uh, unfortunately uh, when one uh, clinical commissioning group decides to remove um, their IVF offer or to reduce it other CCGs start to think that they should do the same or they can get away with doing the same so unfortunately it means that access to treatment is being sort of rolled back across <laughs> across much of the country now. Okay and and how prevalent is this do you have any idea of numbers? Um, I don't off the top of my head unfortunately know specific numbers what I do know is that there are a number of CCGs at the moment who are sort of coming under scrutiny for trying to roll back their provision so for example there is the south east london um uh clinical commissioning groups um as one whole body have decided to not offer treatment to single women and they have given a really bizarre excuse which is that apparently single women don't have the best outcomes of the child um in the long term so some of the decisions that are being made are being made using these truly awful um discriminatory reasoning um so yeah and that's not just london and it's across the country so yeah it is it is quite prevalent okay so not only is it being rolled back for cost cutting purposes but that's also not necessarily the reason given yeah absolutely they're not being upfront about it i mean obviously some will come up and say it's not an endless pot of money and we have to make cutbacks mm -hmm. and of course the nhs isn't an endless pot of money but the truth is that infertility is a disease um according to the world health organization and we wouldn't start cutting back treatment or ignoring clinical guidelines for things like um, ms or we wouldn't be saying or we won't treat endometriosis for example so the the truth is is that ccgs are really reaching and they're you know reasons for cutting back treatment and actually perpetuating quite a few sort of stigmatizing ideas while they're doing it as well yes that's an appalling reason to say that i mean is there any evidence that single women have a less good outcome for the child what does that even mean absolutely not it's um it's completely arbitrary and that is the truth for a lot of the decisions that are being made um yeah it's it's just it's ridiculous really and there are lots of other um ways that inequality is playing out within the system so in some places you have to be um younger than 40 to access treatment in other places it's younger than 35 some places aren't allowing treatment to um, same-sex couples so yeah there are lots of um places sort of implementing different criteria and yeah, depending on where you live, depends on how much treatment you can access for a disease. So. How, how can they get away with such discriminatory practices? I think because it's not, um, because it's devolved, it's devolved to local CCGs, they can really do what they want. Um, the shocking thing is, is that even though the government has issued guidance and has, I think a few times have sent out correspondents to say, we expect you to be following you know, clinical guidelines and not revoking the offers around, you know, IVF and treatment. Um, nobody is paying attention um, and they are just carrying on. So the point of the campaign is to try and get this discussion raised at a high level um, in Westminster um, and to follow up the good work that was done by Fertility Network UK and IVF Babel and associated um, people last year to get 100,000 signatures on a petition to 
parliament which has never been uh, sort of seen through that's still waiting to be talked about and decisions and, and actions still um we're just waiting for them to do something basically so what was the petition for um their petition was asking for um three rounds of treatment on the NHS as per the guidelines. Um, the petition that I've set up as part of the campaign is asking for equality above anything else because it's not right that if I move 20 minutes down the road to Wiltshire, for example, I live in Abington at the moment, but 20 minutes down the road in Wiltshire, I could access three rounds of treatment um, and a better offer. And it's it's just not right. So the petition is currently asking for equality above anything else. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so what what is it that you are currently doing to campaign is you've got your petition yeah absolutely so that's the parliamentary petition on the government's website um and sort of pushing that on all the social media platforms under the um uh the handle at ivf fairness um and yeah there's a lot of communicating on social media to try and break down the idea that um ivf is somehow a luxury it's you know unfortunately on social media you do get a lot of commentary from people who who rightly say you know what about other services that are being cut why should this take priority so there's a lot of communicating about the fact that it's not a luxury treatment it is treating a disease um and there are lots of emotional mental health impacts you know it's not just frustrating not to be able to access treatment it's you know your entire future is kind of <laughs> um jeopardized when you can't afford to pay for private treatment and the, the costs are so extortionate um, and alongside um, that side of things, I'm also working closely with my MP, Leila Moran, and uh, Fertility Network UK, IVF Babel. Other organisations have been really supportive um, to lobby MPs um, against an early day motion that Leila Moran has put forward to um, Westminster in the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, there's a lot of communicating, a lot of letter writing, a lot of emailing MPs. Um, just to try and keep the conversation going and make sure that the people at the top are, you know, listening basically and taking action. Mm -hmm. So if, if people listening want to get involved, where would you direct them? Oh, um, it would be great if people wanted to get involved. I would direct them to the um, parliamentary petition, which is available on uh, gov.uk's website. Um, if you search for and the IVF postcode lottery, that will come up. Um, they can also find our campaign page on Twitter, Facebook, and we have an Instagram account as well. And that's under at IVF Fairness. Um, and there's all the details about the campaign and what we've been up to on there. So, yeah, absolutely would encourage uh, anyone to to seek that information out fantastic thanks so much emily it's um, interesting to talk to you maybe if um you have any developments you'd let us know and we could we could update people of course yeah i mean uh, excitingly i think that there are going to be quite a few things coming up in the next few weeks because i only let, um, met with Leila moran yesterday um and i met with tim childs who helped to write the nice guidelines and there was an interesting conversation about what we can do going forward so i do think that there is going to be some momentum but i will of course keep you updated that is great thank you very much um so people can find you on twitter um they can find your petition um, on the gov site and people can get involved yep absolutely that would be great Brilliant. Thank you for your time. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Okay. Yeah, well, that was, that was interesting, Karen. Yeah, I, I learned stuff. Definitely learned stuff listening to this. Although it's not surprising that it's a postcode lottery, is it? 
No, but it does feel like the criteria that they use are quite arbitrary given that they're very different from area to area. And if there was a, yeah. an evidence base, you know, these people are more likely for it to work. But they, even then, I don't know if that's a good enough criteria. I, 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 I don't know because I haven't looked at it, but uh, there must be a nice guideline, surely. We ought to know that. <laughs> we should know that. We right. should know that. If you want us Do to know more on... about IVF, then please feel free to come and talk to us. We shall revisit yeah, this it. subject, which we know nothing about. Definitely, definitely. I, it, it doesn't seem to me an insurmountable task to have um, a nationwide uh, criteria guidelines. That doesn't seem to me to be madly outside of our ability to accomplish. But then on the other hand, I don't know whether it's better to be able to be more personalised and individual, flexible Absolutely. I'm, I'm quite sure it is actually um but like we've covered before in terms of information giving you know the kind of blanket information that's given out is um almost by by default not gonna suit everyone no indeed right well we'd love to hear your views tell us what you think on facebook.com slash sprogcast or twitter at sprogcast uh, coming up next Karen chats with David Gregory Kumar. Now, let me just set this up for you a little bit. Um, I I contacted him on Twitter because I thought his story looked really interesting. And he'd done um, a piece on the radio, which it's it was a few weeks since I've done this interview. So I've forgotten some of the details, but he'd done something on Radio 4, which I caught and thought, oh, that was really, really interesting. I want to talk to him. And he insisted on listening to a few episodes before agreeing to come on podcast which I really liked that I thought yes that's very professional and sensible and he came back to me when I was chatting with him and this this isn't in the interview that we've put on the show but he said for a show like Sprodcast I found it surprisingly intellectually intense and I was really I love you that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said about our podcast is that what he said (laughs) intellectually intense So here he is, the absolutely lovely David Gregory Kumar. So I'm on the line with David Gregory Kumar, who recently had a baby with a surrogate. Yes, Imani is currently uh, just over 14 months old. Right. And you were there at the birth, is that right? We were. I had the uh, cowardly dad position by the shoulder and my husband had the full-on action dad shirts off ready for first contact down by the business end of things, basically. How cool to have the choice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, we put a lot of thought into the birth plan and how everyone wanted to sort of be comfortable and what everyone wanted to do. So, yeah, that seemed to work for everyone. Brilliant. So that's just what we want to hear about. I would would love to know more about your experience. I think the two big things to be clear about is we did surrogacy in America – so our surrogate, Dijon, is, uh, she lives just outside Las Vegas. Uh, surrogacy in America is, um, I mean, it's altruistic, but it's commercial. You know, mm-hmm. She was, was paid. And obviously then we had beyond that payments for legal, the legal side of things and medical as well. It's, it's IVF, so there's a lot of costs associated with that. Um, in this country, you can't do that. You can't make a profit from surrogacy. Um, but that doesn't mean that people don't do it, obviously. In fact, in our NTT class, there were two other gay dads who were doing surrogacy uh, in this country with somebody who was doing it for them 
basically, you know, she wanted to do it for them, which I think is an amazing thing to do for anyone. And so I think ethically, and if you think about it, there's a bit of a difference in our experience between what you might come across more commonly in this country. If you come across surrogacy in this country, you can't make money. It has to be altruistic. It is an extraordinary thing to do for people. Uh, and then at the other end of that, you do get in this country news stories. You know, things do happen where people, you know, people who turn to surrogacy can often be at the end of a, a line with fertility. And sometimes in this country, people end up in pretty dark places. And, you know, you read there are some pretty horrible stories about what can go wrong. There's a mm. lot of trust involved with surrogacy. Because to be honest, you sign a lot of contracts and stuff, especially with American surrogacy. But if you had to actually go to court and defend it or enforce any of it, I think it would actually be quite hard. So despite everything, even the American, but you know, in America, it really runs on trust. You need to trust everyone involved. Yeah, this is a you're buying a human experience. So it's very interesting, the ethics of surrogacy. And I we both put a lot of thought into it. And we... Uh, looked at surrogacy in various countries and in fact it was quite interesting while we were trying to save up the cash for one thing and looking to do it um, the countries we would look at were banning it and making it illegal for either gay couples or international couples to do surrogacy so this would be countries like india uh, nepal nepal banned it we know somebody who was uh, had a baby in um, nepal and then it, the ban came in and they ended up trying to get out of the country and trying to work out if they're going to smuggle themselves and the baby out so it's it can be di difficult so by the time we'd landed on america we'd been saving so long we could afford it and beyond that it's been going on a long time in america i think ethically we were most comfortable with it we knew that nobody was going to be taken advantage of everyone was going into it with their eyes open and the law is set up in america to deal with it properly that's not always the experience you have here the law here is a bit more piecemeal and a little bit weird in places so is that the reason behind your decision to go to the US to do this? Yeah, we did explore. There's nobody particularly within my family or friend group who wanted to do this, which is fair enough. It's a lot to yeah. ask of somebody. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the good thing about America is, you know, you can be as comfortable as anyone that I think nobody's being taken advantage of. So it's difficult. I don't know if people are listening to this who are coming across it in this country, I, you know, especially if you're dealing with it in a professional capacity i mean you want to be as comfortable with what's going on as possible we've everyone we've dealt with since we got back from america was lovely and out in america they were very lovely too the hospital had dealt with other surrogacy cases and you know often even in america you'll get family members offering to be surrogates for you know uh, close relatives and stuff that does happen so they were familiar with the idea and they set it up nicely for us so we they were we had a large enough room that we could all be in there for the birth um in the recovery we had a room next to our surrogate Dijon so she we wanted her to breastfeed if possible or to express so we could get breast milk for Marnie uh, and she was able to do that quite comfortably next door to us and she'd pop in or a mum would pop in with a little pop of breast milk so everything was set up and everyone was very cool and calm about what was going on I'm sure I'm sure they were looking at us and making sure that everything was you know they were happy and confident everything was all right but it was a it was a really nice experience. It was something, you know, we got a lot out of it. It was really, it was amazing. Yeah. And I actually, I listened to the interview with Dijon that you... Oh, on Radio 4. On Radio one to 4. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still on BBC Sounds. <laughs> yes. Um, and it sounds like you have an ongoing relationship with her. Yes, that was quite interesting. So, I mean, it's obviously my day job as a BBC journalist. It was quite interesting to do one to one. So there's three of them. 
basically talking to people with different experiences of um, uh, Dijon as a surrogate. Uh, one of my friends has got an older daughter through surrogacy and then uh, a young woman who was raised by gay dads partly and sort of talk about her experiences. It was interesting to talk to Dijon for an hour really about surrogacy and also about the experience of her peers. So she was in a group, uh, like a WhatsApp group, uh, and obviously she's with an agency and they're all supporting each other. And, you know, they just end up having very different experiences sometimes. So we were we were very keen. You, you go into it with a contract and with just a sort of an agreement about how much contact you want. And we did say, you know, birthday cards and Christmas will send up the updates. But honestly, um, I think it's the technology, really. WhatsApp and stuff allows you just to have sort of low-level contact. And obviously, we follow each other on social media. Um, so we've just been really lucky. And we've got on really well with her. And we just sort of keep interacting, keep talking. And it's been a very nice experience. Other surrogates, if you listen to one-to-one, I don't know if it made the edit. But she was saying some of the surrogates she knew, um, once they'd given birth, the couple just, that was it. They just disappeared. No more contact. And um, that wasn't what we wanted. I think that's quite brutal. Mm. but that is that is what can happen so I'm not saying sorry sorry it's an amazing experience for the four of us but there also are you know things to be aware of and I sometimes think even in America where everything is set up fairly clearly I think sometimes the surrogates can get a pretty tough deal I think that can I think that can be hard it it's just such a, a difficult area it is and I'm not going to mansplain to women what they can do with their bodies i think it's interesting that in this country you can't do commercial surrogacy you can't be paid for doing surrogacy um you know personally it would be nice to it in this country yeah. if nothing else when you're in an american hospital you are terrified something's going to happen and bills will just start to rack up we had friends who did surrogacy and had twins and it was a pretty intense uh, labor and then cesarean and then the kids were in um, icu and you know suddenly that's you're looking at big medical bills when that happens. It's it's quite scary. So yeah. we were very lucky, but it'd be lovely if we could have done it in this country. And I think, you know, if a woman wants to do it and she wants <laughs> payment for it, I think that's fair enough, but that's not where the law is at the moment. No, I think we're maybe a, a little way away from that. <laughs> so what contact have you had with the services um, for new parents in the UK? So over here we did NTT before we went and the NTT here in the Midlands uh, found us an NTT class with two other gay dads in it, which was just amazing. I was going to uh, say that that's quite unusual. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think I think I don't know how. Yeah, so they were really lucky that that happened, but they did manage it, and you know it was really nice. That's been a really good experience, um, partly because it means while I was off looking after Marnie, there was another gay dad who was going through the same thing at the same time, so we could meet yeah. up. So that was really nice. So we did NTT. Everyone was very cool there. We then went out for the birth with Marnie. When she came back, we pretty quickly... Oh, we had had one health visitor visit at home. Uh, and then I don't think we had another one when we got back. And then we did the sort of... We got her registered, Marnie registered, and then we got her into the system as um, I'd go and do the sort of... I can't remember how often the checkups were, but we go to the clinic sort of however often it is and sort of get her weighed and stuff. So we were sort of in the system. And we've had a couple of doctor's appointments and stuff since then obviously she's had all her inoculations and we've had chicken pox last week so oh. she whizzed off for confirmation it was chicken pox to the doctors very quickly the gp very quickly which was good so it's pretty standard the only 
difficulty was Marnie traveled back as an American citizen. She's an American citizen. And just getting everything sorted, she's now got dual citizenship. But just getting all that sorted, the NHS was fine, but it was just, it wasn't really until she was like British we felt that we got, you know, we were fully in the system. Is there a little fear that something could happen and someone somewhere could say, you can't keep this baby? No, goodness me, no. Well, so once we're back, we're into a legal situation. So the legal side of things in the UK is very piecemeal and is sort of built up. It's not. We took the attitude that it should be doable without a lawyer because, you know, we haven't done anything wrong. Mm. But um, we had friends, some of our our friends who've done surrogacy have done it because they're quite wealthy and they could afford to do it. And they went into court with a barrister and a solicitor. We went in on our own and represented ourselves. But the thing is, if you do surrogacy overseas, you have to go to the high court in, uh, well, predominantly in London, family court to get a parental order. So the UK doesn't recognise... In America, we were the parents on the birth certificate. We're parent one and parent two, me and my husband. In this country, the law recognises Dijon, our surrogate, and her husband, Ryan, as the parents, despite the fact they have no genetic link to Marnie. And they're not on the birth certificate. No, but that's not how it works. That's bonkers. Well, a parental order is something that was set up, I think, to tackle this issue with surrogacy. You have to you have to wait six weeks before you can start the process after the birth. And then you have to start it within six months, I think, or three months. So our friends, remember the NCT class who did surrogacy in this country, they went to the district court, which was in Birmingham, which is just down the road from us. We, though, instantly, if it's done overseas, you get kicked up to the high court. So you have to go down to the high court, you know, proper Harry Potter on the Strand, big castle-like building. Now, I've reported from there, so at least I knew my way around, but it's pretty intimidating. Yeah. Um, But the judge was lovely and stuff, and that's basically just to be recognised as Marnie's parents in this country. And there's just quite a lot of stuff that's sort of grown up a little bit higgledy-piggledy around surrogacy in this country. And it's, I think, certainly the legal side of things, whether or not they change the law and whether you can make money out of surrogacy, the actual, just the legal side of things and how it works, that's something that probably needs to be looked at because it's a little bit complex to navigate. Yeah, it sounds like it could all be taken apart and looked at and put back together more. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And then there is the worry... And obviously you're sitting in a high court courtroom waiting for the judge. And there is that thing in the back of your mind, well, are they going to take her away? Obviously they didn't, but and it, it, I get it. It's all with the best interest of the child. That's, you know, that's what the law is concerned with, which is fine. So we have a home visit from the high court um, family team, um, which was lovely, but it could just as easily have been horrible. I'm sure sometimes people have really rough experiences when they interact with the law like that so it's been an interesting experience i think we've been very lucky but yes <laughs> but i think for other people, money, agrees. <laughs> money agrees but for, i think for other people you know it can be quite full-on but yeah. you know the law the law is concerned about money and we get that but it was a bit full-on yeah yeah you've described everyone you've been in contact with as lovely yeah sorry no, uh, you... i'm glad they were lovely <laughs> it was it was really good so from the NCT class through to the American team, you know, when we're having the baby, then we were back here and we're sort of in the NHS system, obviously. And it has worked really well. It's There's not been any points we've had any kind of issues. Everyone's been very accepting. And I don't know. Is it? Un- I don't know how unusual it is, really, because Marnie only knows she's got two dads. Marnie. But I think, yes. But I think, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, but, yeah. 
I don't know. I don't know how much training people get to deal with these kind of things, but families come in all shapes and sizes these days, and we're just another flavour of family. So it's been quite, it's been quite interesting to watch. But people have been very nice, always very nice. That's really, really positive to hear. Yeah, it's just been apart from kind of tedious legal things, nothing actually getting in your way, no barriers. No, not at all. And I think our immigration was a little bit scary when we came back because we travelled all. You, the one thing it does take a long time to sort is a British passport. So we ended traveling on the American one because otherwise we would have been in America for like months and we couldn't really afford to do that. And so you get mm. a bit, we got quite stiff talking to at Gatwick when we rocked up. They were like, right, you need to get this <laughs> sorted and we are letting you in, but only for six months. Is that because you were traveling with a child that legally wasn't yours? So, well, not not in the eyes of English law at that yeah. point. Obviously, we've got all the documentation. So, yeah, I, I did some research on the numbers. You know, surrogacy in general is becoming more common, hmm. both overseas and here. And, um, you know, I just think there are some points where things could be made a bit easier. But overall, we've had a pretty good experience. Yeah. Why are you obsessed with the toilet? <laughs> Come on. That's the other thing. You go through surrogacy, you spend all this time researching it, saving up, feeling a bit weird because it's such a different way to have a child. And then you went, yes. And then you end up with a child and then it's just like, bang, you're just like any other parent. Yeah. Just trying to cope. And that's the support you need. So how how's it been? Pretty good. She is pretty healthy and lively. She's been, um, she started walking really early which was there's a this video of us going yeah look at her walking and we were oh, like, no. we like oh, God, what have we done um she's her speech is coming on really nicely she's um not had any health issues apart from chicken pox no come in come here all right you go and see daddy then um so it's been really good it, it, we've been really pleased with it um with it sorry chicken pox has been up really early a couple of days <laughs> we've been really pleased with her so um yeah she's pretty pretty lively and healthy she's been in nursery since about seven months and i think that sort of accelerated some development so walking and her speech i think you could definitely trace back to once she was in nursery and could see the other kids she wanted the older kids she really wanted to be engaging with that so i think that accelerated things so yeah i she's amazing she's also really cute which is quite funny well no 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 no, really she is she is really really cute Um, i think she's the cutest baby but that's really funny because like people often engage with her first and Mm. then then they pull back and sort of clock actually who her parents are and what's going on and at that point you can't really say anything can you because you just just said what a lovely baby so you can't have a go so everyone you know wherever we go nobody's there's never really any issues it's all it's all been pretty good and um yeah she's happy and healthy uh which is a huge relief because you you know it's pregnancy and i think the thing with surrogacy is um you think quite intensely about a lot of potential health issues because you need to it, it's three of you making that decision it's the surrogate and the, the intended parents um and there are issues that you've got to think quite intensely about the health of the surrogate the health of the baby you know what the intended parents want what they're comfortable with if you and it's ivf so you might have to talk about uh, selective reduction if you get lots of multiple embryos taking mm-hmm. so there's a lot of you get quite focused on the health stuff and have quite detailed planning or at least we did and quite detailed thinking about what potential outcomes there are and what you're comfortable with and what you want to say so i think that was quite interesting because i don't i'm not particularly sure that the traditional pregnancy you think 
you think about all those scenarios whereas we put a lot of thought into that um so it's you know it's great she's healthy and fine but we have thought quite deeply about some of the other issues that you can have facing pregnancy which is probably a big difference i think yeah i mean i think every expecting couple is is thinking about health but perhaps in a different way a different perspective and you've probably got something at the back of your mind or that kind of thing but we were we definitely had to say well what if this what if you know we had a we thought we knew we thought quite deeply about that which was you know which is maybe probably a bit different well i'm glad you've had such a lovely time yeah she's great <laughs> and it's ongoing <laughs> oh we've got number two to think about next heavens oh. will you go back to america again yeah hopefully dijon is currently um uh pregnant with a she's carrying for another another gay uh, single gay guy this time um and she's currently at 30 weeks i think no 25 weeks um and she always said she wanted to do surrogacy three times and she said hopefully it'll work out that you guys will be ready to go when i'm ready to go and we think that's going to happen um but obviously once again it depends on how this pregnancy goes for her as long as she's fine what she feels you know we've always said you can't put pressure on in this relationship you have to be trusting and you, you can't sort of assume anything so i think we learn to be sort of quite calm about everything but hopefully hopefully she'll be interested and we'll be able to do it and then marnie can get a little a little sibling god help us <laughs> <laughs> yes i wish you all the luck with that thank you so thank much you very for much talking to us. it's been a pleasure thank you so much i love the podcast thank you i'm pleased to hear it i really am <laughs> <laughs> intellectually intense (laughs) oh god nice i love that interview he was so nice to talk to and just listening to his experience and thinking about how um you know what what hoops he had to jump through to start a family with his partner with his husband that just seemed so many steps that he had to take and so much effort he had to go to well the whole idea that in this country it's illegal to uh to charge for surrogacy mm. so stra- straight away they pretty much had to go to america i suppose yeah i mean unless you've got somebody kind of offering well when i say had to go to america you didn't have to obviously there, there could have been someone who who uh volunteered but i i'm guessing I don't know if it was me and I was going through it. I'd have to be very confident uh, about the volunteering relationship. Yeah, that would have a profound effect on an existing relationship. Yeah. I don't know. I understand the way that, you know, charging for it and having legislation around that uh, brings more of a sense of security to those involved. It kind of makes total sense to me. Hmm. I would want that. Yeah, yeah, you'd want those structures in place. Yeah, and planning to do it again. Yeah, yes, with the same surrogate. And she sounds, you know, like that's what she really wants is for it to be them again, and that's so nice. Have we done an episode uh, speaking to someone who has been a surrogate? No, you know we haven't. (laughs) Haven't we? We've never even touched this subject before. Not at all. Oh, we should do that. If, if if anyone knows of anyone who would want to talk to us about the experience of being a surrogate, that would be really interesting, either for one of our episodes here or the Patreon page. Yeah, we're totally up for that. That would be wonderful. So, we're going to skip the news, aren't we?
Um, I think we have to skip the news. We've got so much to to say to people today. Um, we have got quite a few episodes lined up. Um, I've, I'm speaking to Helen Ball soon, so we're um, going to record an interview about sleep. I think you said you've got Michel Odon as a possible interview. He's 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 willing. Uh, in an email, because because now we're mates. Of course you are. What else you got, Helen Ball? Helen Ball. So that'll be on infant sleep and. Granny Don- Donnelly, as you mentioned, um, but this takes us past Christmas. So for our Christmas episode, do you want to do a Q&A again? That was so much fun last year. Yeah, I liked it. And I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd like to offer, uh, I don't know, a badge or a T-shirt for people that submit audio questions. If you send us in a little audio clip of yourself asking us a question, so say who you are um, and t- ask us your question and we'll play it in the show and then we'll answer it or we'll, we probably won't answer it. I'm pretty sure we didn't answer any of them last year, but we did talk a lot. We did. And we we will send a t-shirt and a badge. How about that? For yeah. Generosity. It's Christmas. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So, and it's easy to do. If you record it on your phone, you can send it to us via WeTransfer, can't they? Yeah, just um, give, ping us on Facebook and I'll tell you how to do that. An MP3, an MP4 or a web file will do. And have we got something to say about Pinter and Martin? They've got some visual birth plan cards. Yes, I just wanted to mention the um, release of the Pinter and Martin visual birth plan card deck, which is the visual birth plan from Millie Hill's positive breastfeeding book made into a deck of cards. Oh, what for playing games or what? When you say a deck of cards, is it is it a deck of cards? Is it the jacks, jacks, queen, a deck of cards? Not like not like for playing poker with. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I thought you were talking like there was a deck of cards. Sorry, yeah. I'm being stupid. A, a I, pack of cards? Would you prefer that? Yeah. So so birth plans on cards. Right. In so a deck. you know Millie Hill's visual birth plan where she's got the the round yeah. circles, the pictures that people can use to make their birth plan. Yeah. Each card has one of those symbols on it. Oh, I've got it. So it's not an actual... Sorry, I was thinking literally... It probably doesn't have jokers and queens. Clubs. Races, I was thinking literally on the back was the, the birth plan. I'm oh, sure there's ridiculous. potential for that as a as a second <laughs> edition, yes. Seriously, I was thinking <laughs> play a game of cards and on the back you've got all the birth plan details. As anyway, you can sorry. probably imagine, all my antenatal teacher colleagues are quite hopping up and down with excitement about this because it does come into the two for uh, the three for two offer that Pinter and Martin do, and you can Ooh. use the Sprogcast discount code. So enter the word Sprogcast yeah. at checkout for ten percent off. You can basically That's get good. three of these for about twenty four pounds. That's not bad, is it? And that, do you think fourteen ninety nine is fair price? I think it, it's a very useful teaching resource. So if I was an antenatal teacher, I would probably buy it. So yes. Okay. Well, use the Sprogcast discount code, for goodness yeah, sake. totally. Save money. Karen, so uh, what's inspired you this month? Anything? Yeah, I have been listening to a podcast called How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. And I would say that as a whole, it's a really lovely thing to listen to. And it's um, kind of talking about how um, she, she interviews various celebrities and they're talking about how some failures that they recall in their past have sort of led them to where they are so it's not like a dreary podcast about everything going wrong it's about you know how adversity makes us the people we are and I particularly enjoyed the episode with the actress Mira Sayal and she touched on her own experience of being parented but then she went on to talk about the birth of her second child and how she um 
felt that she should use a Gina Ford routine and the, the impact that had on her parenting and her relationship with her son. And it's really interesting to listen to. So I would certainly recommend that. Okay. How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the Mirasail episode. Wow. Okay. How about you? Anything? Yeah, I, I've been listening to, uh, I, I listen to Sam Harris podcasts, pretty much one of about five that I listen to every time they're out. And it's the podcast is called Making Sense with Sam Harris. And this month's um, episode uh, is episode 171, Escaping a Christian Cult. And um, you know that wacky church in America that pickets um, the, the death of U.S. soldiers and stuff like that? I'm not familiar with it, but go on. No. Are you sure? It's, it's in, hold on, let me just find the detail. It's, it's in the media quite a lot. It's called Something Baptist Church. Oh, oh yeah. Westbury? Yeah. Westbrook. Westbrook Baptist Church. Louis Theroux's done a an expose. Yes, I have. I've, I have listened to a different yeah, podcast series wild. about that. Yeah. I, I mean, they have placards saying all kinds of offensive stuff about homosexual people and stuff like that. And one of the leader's daughters um, kind of left. And the, the, the podcast... Uh, that I'm referring to is her talking about her journey away from this dogmatic, polarized, fanatical view to a more liberal view. And um, there's lots in it um, that has, I think, widespread uh, implications for dogmatism and fanaticism. I'm not suggesting for one minute there's any of that in the birth world, Karen. No. But no, I think there might be. But um, I think there might be. But do you a good, know what? A good I, I think I've heard this podcast. It's, it sounds very familiar. I think I might have listened to it too. So I'm going to second your endorsement. Ah, cool. Well, good. We got. I got one this month. I didn't have one last month, did I? And we agreed about it. Amazing. Hey, <laughs> that's all for this episode of broadcast. I think, don't you, Karen? I think so. We hope you'll all join us for the next one. We have interviews lined up with Helen Ball and Lisa Ramsey. Oh, I forgot to mention that. An old friend of the show. What's she coming on to talk about? Um, her amazing work that she does for NHS England. And I'm having oh. lunch with her on Thursday afternoon and interviewing her there and then. Give her my regards. I'll I give her a hug. her tweets. If you have any suggestions or comments, please get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Uh, that's goodbye for me. Um, thank you for listening. And now here's Rebecca Brion from Birthrights talking about holding it all together, a joint research project between ourselves and birth companions looking at the maternity experience of women facing severe and multiple disadvantage. It's an interesting little piece and we will um, speak to Rebecca at much more length early next year. So if you want to send us in some thoughts and questions about what she says, um, we'll include those in the show and that would be brilliant. So that's something we're looking forward to doing and you can listen to her now. And this, that's the last you'll hear from me today. So goodbye. In June, Birthrights and Birth Companions published research on the human rights issues experienced by women facing severe and multiple disadvantage during pregnancy, childbirth and the postnatal period. To do the research, we interviewed 12 women who were living in challenging circumstances in London and who'd had babies in the last couple of years. Um, the women described living in circumstances such as being in temporary, unstable or unsuitable housing, being single parents or feeling socially isolated, 
having recent or historic experiences of trauma, not having enough money to meet everyday needs, living with mental and physical health conditions or worries about the health of their baby, and being asylum seekers. And all of the women that we spoke to uh, were dealing with at least three of these issues, these factors of disadvantage, but most of them were dealing with many more. We also spoke to 26 professionals and specialist volunteers who support women facing multiple disadvantage during maternity care. So these included um, nine specialist midwives in roles across public health, perinatal mental health, safeguarding and maternal medicine. Three midwives who were not working in specialist roles, but who supported women facing multiple disadvantage as part of a broader caseload. And health visitors, family nurse partnership practitioners who work with younger families, and birth companions, volunteers and staff who support women facing multiple disadvantage in London. And we heard some examples of, of really good care, some really good practice going on. But we also heard lots of examples of experiences where women's rights were not being respected and where women were experiencing poor care or even traumatising care. And we've uh, we've described these under six key themes. So the first one uh, is choice and consent, where women talk to us about uh, experiencing non-consented intervention or feeling coerced into making choices that didn't feel right for them or that they didn't fully understand. And um, women and midwives also talked about the importance of language support. And one of the women that we spoke to wasn't offered any language support at all during her maternity care, despite not speaking English. And midwives described really variable experiences, some with really good access to language support, but some with very, very poor, very difficult to manage access. Women also spoke to us about trauma and dignity. Half of the women had experienced trauma, either recently or historically, Um, but still women talked about feeling left alone or feeling unsupported at a time that worried them, particularly during labour. And midwives, too, talked about their support needs, uh, particularly working with a complex caseload, and the importance of trauma-informed care across maternity care as a whole. The third theme was asylum and immigration, um, where... Really, many of the same issues came up as under the other themes, but the experiences of women who were asylum seekers were were generally worse. They were living in more challenging circumstances, in in more unstable housing, and uh, had worse experiences of choice and consent and feeling supported. Um, They described their care as feeling functional rather than supportive and, and having very little support to make the choices that were right for them. And midwives in particular, or midwives talked about um, their concerns around NHS charging and the position um, that that puts women in um, and the way it acts as a disincentive for to attend for maternity care, but also the position that it puts them in as midwives. Our fourth theme was housing and hardship. And this was a major issue that was raised both by women and by all the professionals that we spoke to. And um, everybody described the impact that it had on women's health and their access to maternity care. And this was particularly an issue for women who were perhaps being moved across boroughs or being moved to new areas and having to um, make contact with new teams. 
And it also impacted on um, women's experience of having a safe place to be in early labour or even being able to access the neonatal ward if their, uh, if their baby needed additional care after birth. The fifth theme that we identified was specialist midwifery and continuity of carer, which uh, you won't be surprised to hear was hugely valued um, by both women and professionals where women had continuity of carer and where women had access to specialist midwifery. And the sorts of things that women talked about were was the um, the value of not having to retell retell their stories and relive trauma over and over again and being able to build a trusted relationship. And midwives spoke but very positively about these things too, but also recognised the pressure that that put on them and the need and particularly for specialist midwives, and the need for all midwives to have the the skills and the confidence to be able to support a woman facing multiple disadvantage. And the sixth theme we identified was about around navigating multiple systems and services. The women that we spoke to were all managing um, contacts with multiple different services, which could be very hard to manage um, in terms of appointments or you know, practicalities like travel and childcare. Um, and midwives and, and, the, and the, prof- the other professionals we spoke to talked about the difficulties of making the right connections, difficulties in accessing the right services, particularly where women were, were moving or where there were different thresholds for accessing services, depending on where you lived. And the um, and some of the practical difficulties they experienced where services didn't always work well together. Um, and we identified a particular need for trauma-informed care and a care pathway for women whose infants were removed after birth, who were often felt to just fall through the neck completely. So the report's available on both of our websites, and we published it back in June, but since then we've been working really hard with um, NHS England, with the Royal Colleges and with um, with organisations uh, across the spectrum of, of sort of individuals and organisations who, who work in this area and uh, to identify actions and concrete things that we can all do to improve care for women facing multiple disadvantage. So the report now has a, a co-produced action plan within it um, that looks at how to uh, recognise the needs of women facing multiple disadvantage in policies, in guidance, in the implementation of the NHS long-term plan, um, at both sort of national and local level. And uh, it also contains actions aimed at improving the support uh, for women facing multiple disadvantage and uh, to ensure that midwives too and other healthcare professionals get the support and training that they need to support women facing multiple disadvantage during the maternity care. And we'll be really grateful to be able to work with everybody across the sector to ensure that that women facing multiple disadvantage, women who have some of the greatest needs, are able to access the best possible care. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.